we're so honored to have you. Um, I see that I know some of you, and a lot of you I don't. So I'm very excited to meet new people. Um, my name is Mitty Farmer. I'm joined here by some amazing colleagues. I'm really excited about this panel. Uh, when I was at the Nixon Library where I started, we um, did this program where we went into elementary schools. And we didn't tell them anything about President Nixon. We just gave them artifacts. We gave them things like his football program, a picture of his brothers. Uh, we showed them buttons from when he was elected president. And just through that, by the end, they knew all about President Nixon without any historical lectures. So today we're gonna look at new ways to read old objects and really try and give you some frameworks and then a lot of practical applications, some fun exercises on how to do that <coughs> wherever you are. In fact, um, we're gonna look at this room, we're gonna look at the furniture, and then I'm gonna look at our persons. And we're really gonna take a look at how to examine everyday objects as well as historical objects. So I'm Mindy Farmer, I was the education specialist, the founding education specialist at the Nixon Presidential Library. Now, I am the director of the May 4th Visitor Center. So I went from Watergate to Kent State, <laughs> um, which is quite a feat. Um, I'm joined by Dr. Christine Barron. Uh, we first met at a conference years ago, and I was so fascinated by research on how to teach teachers how to teach history using historical sites that we've kept in touch and worked together on a number of projects. In that time, she's gone from Boston University, now Columbia. And we have Ware Petsnick, I always say your name wrong, I'm sorry, how do you say Okay, uh, who I recently met, she's in Ohio, she's, at the, she's the director of the Shaker Heights Historical Center, which is an amazing place that does really cool uh, permanent exhibits as well as temporary exhibits, and you can really experiment and uh, we're excited to have both of them. So with that, turn over to Chris. Well, thank you very much. And actually, Ware and I knew each other from way back, and she flew me all the way when she was at, um, was it the McFadden Ward House, flew all the way into Beaumont, Texas, which, I, you know, I, that was the smallest airplane I'd ever been on to get to this tiny little airport where when we were done, when we landed, the um, stewardess said, welcome to Beaumont, ran off the airplane, and then, and we didn't know why, but it was because she had the key to the terminal. <laughs> <laughs> so she let us in, and, and then we got our luggage, and off we went. Hey, so, don't mess with Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go where, nowhere near it. Okay, so I'm Chris Barron. Um, my area of interest actually is, um, I actually was a high school history teacher for many, many years. And then I made this sort of accidental transition into working with museums and made another transition back into working with teachers and, and um, teacher professional development programs. So my area of interest is actually at the intersection of those points. How, essentially, what is it that teachers learn when they go to historic places and how do we know that they're learning them? And this, uh, this question that I, that I came up with you know, it began in part when I was the director of education over at the Old North Church in Boston. Paul Revere, perhaps you've heard of him? Okay, that church, that's where I was working. And I was working on my dissertation uh, at that point and I was trying to figure out like how, you know, how can we evaluate what teachers are doing, how they're learning, 
And I was really inspired by a lot of the work that Sam Weinberg had done um, on historical thinking, you know, working with documents. But here I am, I'm in this old church, and it's a document, but it's not text, right? Or it's text, and, but it's not a document, whichever, you know, whichever side of that argument you want to be on, okay? So my big question was, how do I evaluate what teachers are learning and how, whether or not they're thinking historically about this place if we don't have a framework for understanding it? Well, what was interesting is this started, we started at this moment um, where <clears throat> what we're trying to do is what's called disciplinary literacy. And it be it's become much more important, um, it's become much more important uh, and mainstream as part of the conversation around the common core. Right, you guys know about the common core, yes? Okay, everybody loves to hate the common core. Right, and, I, and uh, yeah, I have no idea why. If you haven't read The Common Core, I encourage you to do it. It is an exquisitely museum-friendly document, okay? In part because one of the things that we are now asking teachers to do with their students is integrate and evaluate content presented in diverse formats and media, including vis visually and quantitatively, as well as in words. How much of your sites does this encompass? Yeah, like 100%, okay? So words as well as visuals, uh, various media, okay? The other thing that the Common Core wants uh, teachers to, to work with their students on is engaging in what are called disciplinary literacy practices, okay? And disciplinary literacy is a nice technical way of saying we want people, we want to know, you know, what are the rules of reading like an expert in your field? And by reading, we're talking about reading that broad spectrum of material culture and objects and various media that you encounter in your professional lives. If you are a historian, if you are an archivist, an archeologist, any of the ifs that we have here today, you have disciplinary practices. Those are valuable to teachers, okay? In particular, okay, so you guys know about the historical thinking stuff where you know, this is how we work with documents, we do all these wonderful things, and we do sourcing, corroboration, contextualization, right? And we get people to work with documents. Okay, how much of your sites are documents? Um, not just documents. Not just documents, right? But mostly, unless you're an archive, most of your collection is not documents, right? <laughs> the interesting thing is documentary analysis is the acti historical activities Americans are least likely to do after leaving school. Okay? So even if, you know, there's all this wonderful support for, the, the, for documentary analysis, this isn't the thing that people are gonna do once they leave school. So one of the things, like I said, we have to figure out if we're going to move beyond just historical thinking with documents, right? Let's, how are we gonna uh, analyze um, place? And so I started looking at the Old North Church and I invited five historians to come in and figure out how do we understand buildings, okay? And I came, developed this program, this um, framework, which I'm gonna go through and, and show you, you know, these different steps, okay? And then we'll try and do a little bit here in the room, okay? Which I will say is much more difficult given that they just updated this room two years ago. It kind of ruins a couple of pieces. But, so the first thing is for application, origination, 
Intertectionality, which you've never heard before because it's a made up word. I know that because I made it up. <laughs> okay? So it's also a, a, a tongue twister and a spelling challenge. So good luck with that. Um, suppositions and empathetic insight. Okay, so I'm just going to walk through those with you now. Okay, so the first thing, when you're looking at analyzing a historical building, the first thing to understand and recognize is that buildings are inherently <laughs> multi-layered artifacts. They are not a single thing that is created like a document where you know, you know who wrote it, under what circumstances, you can nail it to a, a date and a time. But, there, but if a building exists now, right, it has existed since it was created, which means all of those different iterations and changes are evident in the fabric of the building. So we have to figure out a way to understand that. So when we're looking at, for example, the Old North Church, right, you see 1954, that's the most recent steeple, 1912, that window would have replaced the clock, in 1876, that's when that plaque got put there, right, and 1804 is a different plaque, which is not referenced in the second plaque, right? But all of those things are, they're part of the layers of history that we encounter. So one of the first things that you want kids to do, students, teachers, whomever, the first thing you want them to do is identify the layers, okay? Kids love doing this, right? And it may be a little bit difficult on, you know, in, in this, you know, um, on the front of the church here, but one of the quickest, easiest ways to get someone to start to see layers is to ask them to identify the different layers of technology. Okay, so for example, can you identify different layers of technology in this room? Lighting? <laughs> yeah. Wi-Fi? Okay, we've got lighting, the Wi-Fi. Usually what ends up happening, and you can actually see it, in the back, there are two different panels, right? There's one panel over here that our sound guy is waved to, sound guy, there you go. So that's controlling, I don't know. <laughs> but here's the thing, there's another thing controlling that same I don't know over there. And you actually, might, one of my favorite things to notice is uh, if you go to the restroom, okay? How many different soap dispensers? <laughs> are there that have been used and discarded, how many empty, um, remember the swine flu epidemic, right? And now there are just these, these, these fossilized shells of what used to be antibacterial hand dispensers, just <laughs> empty in places where, oh, if every subway stop had one of those, well, my, you know, it would be heaven to me. But we see these, these layers all the time and we don't consider them. Kids love looking for layers. Teachers love looking for layers. Once you start seeing layers, you don't stop seeing them, okay? If you go no further, when you are asking people to analyze buildings and asking them to look for layers, you are still going to have an incredibly rich conversation around what this building is all about. Because inherently, you have to begin to, to say, okay, well, well, now we need to start pinning that to particular times, right? This is. I call this stratification because, again, you're looking for these sort of archaeological layers that are evident um, in a building. This is really disorienting. I'm going to work with this. Um, okay, so the next piece, once you have those layers, what's the next thing that you would want to do? Does anyone have any idea? 
you see all these different layers. What's the next thing you might want to do? Organize them. Organize them. How would you organize them? Possibly by date. Date is a very good way to organize things, <laughs> right? So you, you figure out the oldest to the newest, right? Once you've got that oldest date, everything you know, sort of falls in behind. But that's where you begin to tell the story of the, the origins of this building, right? But then you come to another really interesting question because, again, unlike a document, if you are looking at a building, right, in the document you can say, who wrote this, right? And it's, you know, the person who wrote it. Like, yeah, that's a thing we can find out. When we're looking at buildings, the question is a little more challenging about who, who built this building, right? So is it the architect, right? Is it the person who actually worked on the building, the builders? Or is it the people who paid for it? Or is it you know, some combination of all of them? Well, when you're looking at the, the origins of the building, the other thing you want to do is situate it in its original context. What were the circumstances of generation? What were the circumstances that said, you know, this piece of land is the one that we're going to set aside for this building? Okay, and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna cite it in a particular way. We're gonna make the front door face this way or that way, okay? Then you add back in all of those other people to figure out why. Why did we build this building in this particular way in this particular moment? And how did we keep doing that to generate those different layers? Does this make sense? It's, this is so much fun to do, okay? Um, all right, so the next piece, intertectonality, the word you've never heard, right? So intertectonality, if you're familiar with Weinberg's framework, um, the next step would be obviously corroboration, right? Like let's compare these things side to side and get different accounts to determine the plausibility of the arguments involved, right? Well, there's nothing plausible about a building. You know, I mean, either it exists, I mean, it exists, there it is. Like, that, it's not plausible it exists, right? So you don't, doing the side-to-side -side comparison doesn't really help you figure out anything about this building. But, what it, but what the type of comparison that you want to start making, though, is in relation to other buildings, okay? So in particular, I had one historian, um, and she was, she was from Kentucky, uh, and she I had her come up and analyze the Old North. And she said, okay, well, what this makes me think of is that Boston was very, very different from, the first buildings in Boston are very different from the ones that we still have in, where I grew up in Kentucky. This is much more like the buildings I've seen in Philadelphia, right, uh, Philadelphia. Uh, it's not at all like the ones I've seen in Europe with those big stained glass windows. It's much more like um, congregational churches and, and she talked about the Enlightenment and letting those big uh, clear windows in. Okay, so what you want to do is situate it within, you know, nest it within kind of a Goldilocks of other buildings, okay, in terms of both form and function, and that's how you begin to, to do all this lovely comparison. Okay, the next thing, once you've gathered all this interesting data, then you get to say, okay, now, now that we've got some data about this space, what are we going to do with it, right? Now is where we get to make wild judgments about what is possibly going on in this place. Okay, so we know that the Old North Church was built in 1723. 
We know that it shut down during the revolution after the whole the lanterns incident because hmm, that was not so good. Shut down for three years and then it's been open you know, every day except uh, they close on Thanksgiving and New Year's Day, you know, every day since then. Okay, so why, of course, at the front of the, has anyone ever been there? Old North Church? Yeah, okay. Uh, why is the window at the front of the church, on the upper right-hand side, why is there a brick wall directly behind it? It's a false window designed to create symmetry. It's a false window designed to create symmetry. It's a good guess. The has it what's always what? been blocked? Structural? Maybe it's structural. Has it what? always been blocked it from has, the get-go? It has not always been blocked from the get-go because we do know that this wood is original wood, and we know that the bricks are not original. What's what? You don't want to know what's going on inside? Okay, can you? You'd probably accomplish that with a curtain, though. Yeah. The brick wall seems a little like. <laughs> you know what? That's really I mean, serious stuff. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's an Anglican church, not a Masonic lodge. Like, like, there's, there's nothing secret here. What's on the other side of the brick wall? On the other side of the brick wall is a brick wall that leads, the, and it's in a courtyard. And there's a clear outline where there was a a, uh, a window, like they bricked up the window on the outside. To, to lay flush with the existing wall. Any, any Was glass really expensive and they couldn't replace it? Like it got broken in a battle or something? Okay, was glass really expensive? Did they keep someone they, or something in or out? Keeping something in or someone in or out? The function of the space behind the window changed? The function of the, the space behind the window changed? Okay, all of these things, all of these ideas, these guesses, are really, I mean, they're good guesses. What they are technically called in educational psych psychology language is suppositions. That you are supposing all sorts of ideas about what this could be. Now that we have this data, what could we possibly do with this? Okay, to explain it. What the, um, interesting, the one of the historians that looked at this said, it wouldn't surprise me if this was blocked up because a very wealthy person sat in his pew and kept getting sun in their eyes during Sunday services. <laughs> okay, But we have no data, we have no documentation on why that is. But it begins to generate other possibilities that send you either you know, in for more research or to go look further at the, the material culture there. The other piece, the next piece, <coughs> is what's called empathetic insight. And again, this you know, after we gather the data on that in that first part, we're looking at empathetic insight. And what empathetic insight means is that you try to put yourselves in the place of the person to understand the beliefs and circumstances and the affective life of the individuals involved. This is not, you know, taking on the persona of, okay? But it's sort of trying to stand alongside the historical agent and understand, like, what were they, what were they thinking? You know, what were they feeling? What, and how did their beliefs and circumstances play into their choices? Okay? So one of the historians, uh, so this is a, one of the plaques. Uh, it's a memorial plaque 
to Reverend Mather Biles. Does anyone know who Mather Biles was? Yes, he was the rector. <laughs> Reading is fundamental. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so Reverend Mather Biles, who was the rector of the church, okay, he was the he was unfortunately one of the most ill-tempered humans that we have documentation of. Like through the historical record, everyone says like we fired him. Like he was fired from like four different churches. We fired him for poor attitude and for trying to make us pay more money for his poor attitude. Right, like he was just, he was kind of a gnarly human being, right? He had the unfortunate distinction of being the pastor uh, as the revolution was ramping up, right? And he kept giving these firebrand sermons about how we need to support the king, you know, in a room full of colonial merchants, and they're like, I don't think you understand what's going on here. So <laughs> the morning of April 18th, Interestingly enough, so the evening of April 18th is the Lanterns. Morning of April 18th, they happen to have their uh, annual meeting uh, of the church vestry, and they fired him. They threw him out. See you later. That night, all sorts of shenanigans go on. Uh, he refused to leave. Okay? But then he was eventually, he was escorted out of Boston. Um, when he was left, sent out of Boston, he was told that, uh, and you can read here, loyal to the king, he was banished by the Act of 1778 to, quote, suffer death without benefit of clergy should he return. So he would go to, go to his grave, on, with an unconsecrated grave, which for a minister, it's, that's pretty hardcore, right? So one, of the, so one of the historians, when he came in and looked at this, and he said, oh my goodness, this, this is evidence of the real suffering that went on in this church during the revolution. This is brother against brother. This is, this is a real condemnation, like to the core of who this human was. And based on just this little bit of, bit of evidence, you know, this is, this is the opportunity to try and understand why people did what they did when they did it, okay? It is not the first step. Okay? I, want to incur I want to make this perfectly clear. When you are starting to try to understand the emotional lives of historical individuals, do the data collection first. A lot of teachers, in particular, are going to want to go for that, first, that big emotional impact first. Right? And they are going to read a lot of emotional impact into circumstances um, before you get to the facts. <coughs> Why? Why are teachers going to want the emotional impact first? Yeah, because that's how they get the, their students to get, yeah. to get involved. They want to get their students interested, so they want that emotional hook. I want to encourage you, when you are working with students and teachers, hold off on that emotional hook. Okay? I know the teachers want it. I know they do. Right? But what you want to do, what you want to model, is that first data collection part. You know, what were the circumstances of this place? What are the layers that we can see? How does this, con you know, the form and function of what we're doing compare to what we've seen in other places? Then consider how the individuals who use this place used it and what their <coughs> motivations were. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Okay, so originally, so here we go. We'll just review quickly. 
So framework for uh, historical thinking using building. Stratification. So again, look at those layers. Okay? Look at the layers. Then try to figure out the origination, the, the origins of the building, the time, the place, the circumstances, the why, the who, okay, of the, of the beginning. Intertectonality, how does this building compare to other buildings, it both similar in form and function? Uh, suppositions, you know, try to figure out why, when things are missing, that they're missing, or if they don't make sense, why they may not make sense. And then lastly, empathetic insight. Okay, so this is the framework. I have here, and again, I was prepared for an academic conference <coughs> where I have six people who like email their department chairs during my presentation and kind of don't pay attention to me. Um, I was prepared for that conference. This is a delightful change. <laughs> <laughs> However, I, only, I don't have enough copies of things. But what I do have here, um, I have two articles that I wrote. And this isn't just because I want you to read my articles, but they're, they're quite good, I will say. Um, <laughs> this one is about working with students and how to apply this uh, framework with students. It's about using buildings as text and using them to support um, students who are non-native speakers, um, students with language-based learning disabilities, and how you can use the objects and material culture to, to support students in that, as well as using uh, original text. Okay? This one is how to work with teachers uh, and using uh, this model for um, you know, historical thinking with buildings and how to structure teacher education programs so that what they're actually doing when they come on site is not just you know, kind of blindly touring the place, but that they're really looking at the place that, where they are going to spend a week you know, or longer. Okay? So I have, you know, I'm happy to hand these out, but we also have, um, uh, what do you call them? Business cards. We have, I, yes, I have business there's cards, there's but there's a sign-up sign sheet. <laughs> Thank you. There's a sign-up sheet that's going around that we will be happy to send you PDFs of these as well as the slides um, so that you can see those. Uh, and I'm going to turn it over now to where, unless, after, do I have any questions that I can answer at this point? Yeah. Yes, I did look at the National Park Services uh, teaching with historic places, and it's what's interesting is that they the sequence that they do things is a little bit differently. Um, the and I really I love that program, um, and my advisor was the one who, who came up with it, which is part of the reason why I wanted to work with it. Um, it this is much more tied to educational psychology and in terms of uh, like what are the real mechanisms that we use to, to create the, to um, follow these. The Teaching with uh, Historic Places program was developed by a committee, mm -hmm. and this one was sort of drawn from watching actual experts do what they do. So that, I think that's, I mean, and not a slight on that program at all, it's wonderful. It seems like they could be used in tandem with one another. Absolutely, I think if you think of this as like an update that connects <coughs> to disciplinary practices and disciplinary literacy, in that way, um, I think that's a good way to think about it. Other thoughts or questions? All right, where? Off you go. Hi, glad to be here. Um, 
I uh, am the director of the Shaker Historical Society, which is a partner with the Ohio History Connection. And we also plug for the Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We also are proud recipients of the grant from them. It's a very wonderful um, model for the country of how the county filters money into arts and cultural organizations. But I digress. Um, my role in this was to follow um, Chris, uh, Chris's framework in a more practical <coughs> fashion and with specific reference to furniture because that's my um, background. Um, when you have an object in a museum, the first thing you do when you go to Past Perfect is it asks you what it is. In the lexicon, it's trying to identify, well, what is this thing? And so um, learning to read objects like you read everything in your daily lives. Raise your hands, everybody. How many times you have met someone and they, <clears throat> you see their eyes scanning you, like they're x-raying you, <laughs> that their eyes wander trying to take in your, your, your hair, your clothes, your accent, your body type, your, your shoes, everything. <laughs> they are making an assessment of you. So you're, you guys should be used to reading things and reading objects. Anyway, so back to the past perfect. Um, if you use a chair, for example, <coughs> as a type of object that you want to investigate, the lexicon only has 30 different names for chairs in Past Perfect. There are tons of types of chairs where there is a specific language, a specific vocabulary that relates to that object to identify it that isn't in Past Perfect. So, we see chairs. I thought we'd focus on the humble seat. It's something we all can immediately recognize as, oh, this is a seat of some type. And all the different materials and ways that a chair manifests itself in our daily lives. Take this for example. This chair in this room. Does this evoke anything? Do you have any thoughts of reading this chair? Is it comfortable? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be quick so you can get on. Utilitarian, so its function is very important. Function is something when you read an object is very important. Well done. Anything else? That springs to mind looking at this chair or sitting on it. Pardon? Banquet hall. What? I still Stackable. 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 Yes, so it has another function. So this probably wasn't made in the last century, although it might feel like it. Um, it also is kind of, it's not a typical straight back chair. It has upholstery, it's got a rounded top, and it's kind of giving an impression of a Louis the 15th chair, like um, Philip Stark's ghost chair or something. It's that same kind of form. Okay, that was a slight digression, but there was a reason for it. So when we look at objects like a chair and all the different types of chairs from different cultures, different regions, different classes, different matters of taste, different functions, different aesthetic values. We need to have a multidisciplinary approach because other, um, other subjects, other topics 
other sources of learning are going to help you properly read an object more fully, like a shaker chair, shaker historical design, uh, Clismos, Harbor, you know, do you know these terms? Maybe, maybe not. Okay, anybody know what this type of chair is? Windsor. Windsor. Spindleback. Windsor. Um, Windsor's the common term, it's an English term for it because it seems to have originated over in England. High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire was a, a big center of production. But it came over here in the colonial period. So a lot of people view the Windsor as kind of a quintessential American chair. So unlike the, the shaker chair, um, I chose this as our example today. Um, what does it say to you? We, we, we did a little um, uh, judgment of the chairs you're sitting on, but what do you think about this? Can you make any assessments? Can you read this chair? Formal. 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 Anyone else? Hard. Hard, okay. It's lacking upholstery. Highly crafted. Pardon? Highly crafted. Highly crafted. Interesting you think that. It's a very ancient form of construction going back. You could go back, it's a stick chair. So the, the, the technology of it goes back to like ancient Egypt. That's, that's not a, a highly advanced form of putting something together. Anything else? Promotes posture. <laughs> yeah, well there are all sorts of things that you can analyze about this chair to read it and read its function, read its background, read the kind of story it tells. What if George Washington sat in this chair? Can you read that by looking at it? No. There's a plaque. There's a plaque. I got a high back, so Okay. So if we build upon um, Chris's and Christina Dobbs' article expanding the notion of historical text through historic building analysis and apply the same principles to reading a Windsor chair, um, then, oops, wrong way, then um, we can ask all sorts of questions like, uh, is it old fashioned or is it timeless? Is it comfortable then but not now? Um, what we, how we read it varies incredibly based on our culture, our background, and our knowledge. And, and the turnings are a little more crafted than just a plain Windsor, so. Yeah, it, it, a little more extra care was taken yeah. with it. But um, if you view the history of the Windsor chair, sorry this is such a, a blurry <coughs> photo of Mount Vernon, but you have to see things in context. It looked like a very high-style chair to you, but um, it originally was a very basic, cheap chair. It would not appear usually in pattern books, like Thomas Chippendale and Sheraton and Heppelwhite did in the 18th century. Those were high-fashion types of chairs. Like, unless you went to the Sears catalog or something to find the chair like the conference chairs you're sitting on, <coughs> a high-fashion catalog wouldn't have a chair like that and wouldn't have a chair like a Windsor chair. But um, George Washington bought like 30 odd chairs, 30 odd Windsors from a craftsman in Virginia. And if you relied solely on the documents and you went to Mount Vernon and you saw and sat on one of these Windsors that are on the porch, 
you might be easily misled to think, oh, well, we have the document. Clearly, it refers to these chairs. But no, they don't, because those chairs were reproduced in 2013 by a local furniture maker named Mark Sukup. He did them from Mount Vernon, so guests could have the experience of sitting in them. So we have to use documents as well as the physical reading, which the chair I kept showing you, there's only so much you can do with it. Um, if we're trying to investigate stratification and the various layers of history that a Windsor chair has, you can't really do that from a photograph. How many times have you tried to find out research about your collection and want to send it to an expert or an appraiser and they say, no, no, I can't do that without seeing the object? Well, can't you just look at a photo? No, no, you physically have to see the object. So I brought miniature version. <laughs> this, um, this is something, okay, I heard salesman sample. Anybody else? American Girl doll. American Girl, a doll's chair. Any other ideas of what it could be? Patent model. <laughs> a patent model or an apprentice piece, an SAP, something like that. You, you hear a lot of those kind of stories, but feel free to look at this upside down. Look at the wear on this. Does it really suggest that someone over centuries has sat in this chair? Does it look like it was made yesterday in China or Taiwan? Pass it around and look at it more closely. You really have to look at the actual object to be able to determine the authenticity and be able to look at the stratification the layers of history with that. The source of it goes back to the 18th century in England. It also comes to us through colonial America. Um, but paint layers, if we had them on a chair, could help us with the various layers and wear patterns. But this is why you need a physical object to investigate. And anyone handing that chair around will clearly know it was made within the last five years something like that. Okay, um, kind of related to looking at the layers of things is, um, here's an example of a Windsor chair that if you look at it closely, it looks pretty worn. It's got turned legs, turned elements, but the seat has hinges in the back. Anyone know what that might be for? A potty chair. Well done. See, you guys know how to read objects. So yes, it is indeed a potty chair. Um, and the function of that small chair is used by its owner to, to have a teddy bear sitting on it. So the function is divorced from what original Windsor chairs were used for. And that's something of the layers over time that can change, not just layers of paint on it, <coughs> the, the, the wear of the patina showing the use, but also the layers of time could be that once this was used for a functional purpose, later it may have been used for a more decorative or aesthetic purpose. So layers of time can also be 
something a little more esoteric than a physical um, evidence of, of the change in time. Right? Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and I think it's, excuse me, it's interesting when you, when you think about this, if you think about the layers of design as well, mm -hmm. that the, the constant modification of it, it's one of those, one of the things that is very, very difficult for um, students and teachers to understand is how do you quantify time, right? And one of the ways that you can do that is show different patterns, that this is the passage of time. But it's also a way, it's a commodity. Time is a commodity. And if you're going to have these lovely spindles, right, each of them takes how long to make, right? And the fancier a thing is, the more time it's going to take. Well, what do we know about time? You know, time times labor equals, you know, cost. You know, it becomes more expensive. And so understanding ways of commodifying time is a very, very complex task, but it's one where students struggle with. And this is a really wonderful way of making that evident in, in ways that are otherwise hidden. Okay. Um, so the origination of an object is not just its time and place of origin when someone put this chair together. It's also, or that little chair that's going around. The origination of that little doll's chair goes back to the original <coughs> form that it is imitating. Um, and very, very popular forms tend to be reproduced, or motifs tend to be reproduced time and time again. So only through observation, repeated observation, and learning the language of whatever particular type of objects you're really focusing upon, can you discern the differences between an 18th century Windsor chair, a 19th century, a 21st century, etc. Other sources that can help add to your literacy to be able to read the layers, or this is almost more related to your, um, your association aspect, is intertectonality. Or sources like uh, period paintings, you guys know all about this, is Arthur D. This is uh, the James family at the Tate. Uh, and you see this very genteel, clearly aristocratic, clearly wealthy, high-class family sitting in their garden on Windsor chairs just like the one being passed around. So this was associated with an elite, but not for their grand front room, which would have had damask and silks and things like that. It would have been out in their garden. This was originally a poor man's kind of garden chair, painted usually green because it was out of doors and also to help protect the cheap types of wood that were readily available around the craftsmen. Okay. So we already covered this. How, do, how does this modern version uh, relate to other chairs? You guys thought it might be a child's chair, an apprentice piece. If it were an 18th century small example, then it may very well could have been an apprentice piece to show their master with whom they were indentured that they knew the skills of the trade and they could be trusted with the costly materials and work at the bench in order to fabricate such a chair. So it is possible that it could have been something like that, but um, unless we um, have a frame of, of reference for making apprentice pieces and whether that particular one 
fits into that category, it would be very hard to prove that association. Um, so frame of reference. There we go. Everybody knows the scene, right? Where is this? Independent hall. And clearly, I show it to you for a reason. Windsor chairs all over the place. So early America, colonial America, the very signing of the American Declaration of Independence happened with the Windsor chair. It was there. It was a witness to these things. So reading objects in context is a heck of a lot easier than when you've got an object completely or completely divorced from its original surroundings. Yeah. What does having a bunch of lawn chairs say about <laughs> our founding fathers? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great. That's a really great question. It's yeah. a really great question, and the, and one of the one of the things that you have to do if you're going to if you're going to have students and teachers work in a room like this is you have to make it clear that this room was not preserved in this perfect intact place for the entirety of its history. That somebody at some point took it back to this, and that they put the put those chairs in with the the understanding of what they were. Right? But understanding that they are lawn chairs changes the fundamental nature of the discussion. Like, did, I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't fancy pants they were sitting on. It, it was government, cheap government well, stuff. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> cheap government stuff. Well, but in the 1870s, look, they decided that's what a colonial room looks like. Yeah. That's but if you look at Trumbull's painting of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, George Washington is not sitting in a Windsor chair, like out on his front porch at Mount Vernon. Mm. He's sitting in what looks like a throne. Mm. So bear that in mind. All sorts of things that we could talk about. Empathetic insights and suppositions. So why did the owner of that little chair, it's not me, I promise, buy that chair? Was it because of they wanted to embrace their, their Plymouth Colony roots? Did they want to just uh, decorate their house so it fit in with other antiques that they had? Um, were they like the early 20th century where everything was colonial revival from the architecture to the interiors? But by the time you get to 1958, when everybody who wanted to prove that they were had the right interior had to be colonial, to the point that Auntie Mame, I had to do this for I you. Know, <laughs> remarked on the spinning wheel and the Windsor chairs and things and the John Quincy Adams statuettes in the bathroom that, you know, it's, it's very colonial and uh, at ups and downs, um, the woman, uh, the, the household owner basically said, we wanted to create an authentic colonial America. And Maine disparagingly says, and you succeed. <laughs> So just from that little chair, we, our, our conversation went to so many different places. And one, one other little thing I want to um, get to before I pass over to, uh, to Mindy is that when we think of something like the Windsor, you need to be aware of the authenticity of it because it is a, a popular chair that's still being made today. And there's a value in it. Like Wallace Nutting made faithful reproductions, which sell for thousands. Um, so you keep on seeing this form 
like the small dolls form. And the growth of popularity is proportional to the number of fakes, imitations, and reproductions. So the more popular a style is, the more likely you're going to get a fake or you're going to get a little chair made in China. <coughs> That's like it. Okay. And the American Windsor got to the point where you'd see it on television. You'd see it in the Cosby show in the 80s. Little <coughs> kitchen chair. Father of the Bride, 1991. But if you, if you watch Home and Garden television, they'll say it's old-fashioned, rip it out, and replace it with mid-century modern chairs. <laughs> so if you want to learn more about Windsor chairs or potential sources, we'll provide a source list and a bibliography, which we'll email to you. And I'll stick it on SlideShare as well in a week. So conclusion, uh, to read objects, you can be like Inspector Morse, deduce, only deduce, and you can do so by read, reading very broadly and perhaps doing the Times crossword every day. <laughs> Thank you. Ah! I'm also the tech person today, so in the meantime, there's a the, the sign-up sheet that's gone around. It's, you want to start passing that forward? <coughs> All right. So <clears throat> I'm tasked with looking at politics, and I have to warn you a little bit. I'm getting over a case of bronchitis, so right before this presentation, I took a bunch of cough medicine, so we'll see if that's a good or a bad idea. <laughs> um, just a second. Um, <laughs> exactly, if I start hallucinating. But we're going to the 70s, so that's going to be okay. Um, <laughs> so what we're going to talk about a little bit is how to apply some of the frameworks uh, that Chris put forward to politics. And in this case, because politics is very broad, the politics of the person, the things we do, the things we write, the things we wear. Um, and this is important. I'm going to do exactly what Chris told me not to do and go for the hard strings. Clothing matters. This uh, was four months on my job at Kent State. This uh, offensive sweatshirt created, started a national discussion. If you don't know the story of it, um, it's very interesting. It was created out of one outfit, and outfitters, of course, you can see how offensive this was. Um, and so clothing matters, it says something. And in my previous job, at the Nixon Library, um, I have to tell you, I was in charge of the nonpartisan part of it. So I was in charge of the educational programming that tried to be as fair and balanced as we could be. There was another side, oh, I was, I was fair and balanced, the other side <laughs> was not. They would bring in people, and I love it, people from all sides. I think that's a very important debate, but they would bring in people who were so far that um, <clears throat> sometimes I was very frustrated by it. So I would wear outfits of protest that were silent, no one knew. I never told this story before. But for instance, when someone came that I found offensive and, and just not adding to our American discussions, I wore one time polka dots because they couldn't connect the dots. <laughs> I, I one time wore gray because it was all black and white. I bought, a horrible jacket that had stripes on it uh, to referee. 
Um, and I met a very famous Republican, very conservative um, presidential candidate in all blue. Um, so you've launched a trend now. You know that. I, I joked for a while because uh, Kent State is also known for their fashion museum, but I was going to create a fashion of of uh, <clears throat> subtle rebellion, where OK means F you. Um, but I, I never have. But clothing can be, it, it does matter. And you can use it as silent protest. Uh, you can use it as outward protest. And, and this is, of course, a button from the Nixon library. Close the credibility gap. Uh, vote Nixon, Agnew. Um, and we know how that went. Um, <laughs> but there's a really great segue. <laughs> because what we're going to talk about a little bit is the clothing of the generation gap. So, <laughs> does anyone know who these gentlemen are? David Crosby. Yep, <laughs> it's David Crosby and his father. Oh. David Crosby and his father. And I should mention, because we're being recording, we're describing these a bit more than we would, um, but let's apply some of the principles that we've talked about. Um, of course, we've talked about buildings, but I would argue that Chris's framework can be applied to a number of things. So let's look at the layers of this. What can we see here? His father kind of shows almost as if he's trying to show more his social standing, whereas the son looks more like he's showing personal, <coughs> independent side of himself. Exactly. That's a very, very, very good point. Well, and his father is also depicted in essentially black and white slash sepia, but everything else is a color. Exactly. Yeah, very good. I think the way they're standing is interesting because the father's standing very proper and the son's very casual, cavalier, sort of sitting on the edge of the, of the chair, which you're not supposed to do. And got his legs crossed, and there's right. sort of a clash there. Yeah. But the father's standing over the son, so it's like, I'm the bad and you're the son. You can't be. It's interesting. I, I mean, I sort of can tell. Uh, they both look at home, maybe, in that space. Mm -hmm. right. A little bit. Like that chair to the left. And when I, um, when we tour students through the center, and this is a picture we show in the May 4th Center, we always say that this is not just about getting you to understand history, but to put yourself in it. And we ask, how would you have been dressed? I mean, these are the extremes, but it's a very good question. Anyone want to volunteer? Father, how many fathers? How many hippies do we have? <laughs> okay. Um, it's going to get worse. <laughs> so what do we have here? Yeah. <laughs> Electric Kool-Aid acid test bus. <laughs> and what's that a reference to? Uh, taking LSD. Wait, laced into Kool-Aid. Yeah. Uh, can anyone guess the time frame of this? 68. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the 60s. Um, this is a very famous commune. Does anyone heard of, can anyone guess? It's actually still around today, want to join. 
Commune. Has anyone heard of that? Okay, take my word for it. Do not look up that on Google Images. Nudity is a principle, and if you're in a classroom, do not. <laughs> I did this on a public computer. I promise you, this is not. It seems innocent. How many people are Googling what, what was that? <laughs> 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 All right. It's a dollar order. So, uh, in the center, we contrast this with the typical American family. Um, typical wife, father, two kids, and we ask, how many of you would have been on the bus, and how many of you would have been part of the traditional family? So let's ask now, how many of you would have been on the bus? Oh, chance. <laughs> how, many <of> you, <laughs> how many of you were on the bus? <laughs> statement, this clothing means something important. Now, are these hippies? No. Just college students okay. and high school students. Where are we? Can anyone guess? Let's look at all the things we've learned. All the buildings. So Kent, LSO, guessing Kent State campus area. This is downtown Kent. Um, does anyone have a guess? Uh, this was one part of a much larger day of marches. Does anyone know what that one would have been? Yeah. Exactly. So October 15th, 1969. And what do we see here politically? What are they carrying? What are they wearing? There's the like no This one also from the larger moratorium. There was another bigger one on DC. Um, this one, very typical piece now. And all these meant a lot. Now, looking at the layers um, and thinking about empathetic insight, how many of you think you would have been in this march? Possibly. Especially if you've been at the age. And when we bring students through again, because a lot of this I've learned from practice, I have to tell you, they don't look any different. The clothing then is very similar to the clothing now. There's also a hidden thing in here. This is Alison Krauss. 
She's one of the four victims on May 4th, very much an activist. Um, not all of them were. Some of them were just walking to class, but she was an activist. And so then, we have this. Can anyone tell what this is? Any guesses? I know, I know one person who knows because she's like that. Sarah, do you know what this is? Anyone want to guess why there's a single person standing in the middle? She looks like her. Mm -hmm. Representing her? Right. Part of the uh, story of Kent State is that um, every, the campus was shut down, so there was no <coughs> memorial. So on May 4th, the night of May 3rd, actually, someone stands memorial all day for them. All night, all day. So this person is a volunteer part of the May 4 task force, which is a student group, or a volunteer from the community who's standing vigil. And they keep a light, and so that's why there are lights. Um, and you can see some of the layers and the importance of this. And I, I know I kind of broke the rules to go for the hard strings, but I think it's Kent State, so. <laughs> <laughs> what are the cups for? So, um, that's a very good question. On the night of March, um, on the night of May 3rd, there's a silent march through campus, and it's candlelight. So that day, that night, after the silent march, people bring their cups and they put them near the four markers. So those are cups from the silent march the day before. Um, we won't look at this too much, but I, I do want to remind you of this. This is the famous photo. And this is known on Kent State. So when we see things like this, we know. They're making a statement, a very big political statement. Um, what's this from? It was just last year. Ferguson, right. Kent State and Ferguson were trending. This is the Ferguson-Kent State diet. And I'll leave you with one thing. Um, it was a Another piece of politics from uh, that, from <clears throat> a political cartoon, something very specific, and you can read and try and make some of the connections. I just wanted to show a different way to apply the layers, the empathy, the understanding. So with that, I'm gonna open it up. We wanted to have lots of time for Q&A, questions for us, questions for Chris and Ware and I. Um, so do you have any questions? <coughs> 
Oh, I should say, I did plant today. Uh, because we do want people to leave the center and talking about May 4th with the idea that there is something positive. So I did wear my Be the Change shirt, which is our motto. And in fact, I have buttons, but I don't know that I have enough. So, so only well, if you ask a question.
And one of my favorite articles on this has one of the best titles ever. It says, back when God was around in <laughs> Right? Like, little kids, they, know, they have a real temporal sense. And so when you ask them, can they see historical layers? Little kids can do this. Right? Middle schoolers love this. Right? This is, this is great. And graduate students love it, of course, because it's like they get to stand there like this. Right? So don't be afraid to, to try this out with, you know, some, you know, with really small kids, because they can do it. It's going to set this, and this is part of the reason why the Teach You um, Historic Places program was so successful, is that it's just a template. And it, you can scale it up or down depending on the age of your audience. And you're going to get age-appropriate responses, right? You're, what you're going to get from kindergartners is going to be very different than what you're going to get from graduate students. But it's still the discovery for them is, is age-appropriate. I heard from a teacher one time that, or a small person, that long ago is mommy and daddy. Long, long ago is grandma, grandpa. time and real time. So they know, like they, you know, that there's a BBC series <coughs> Walking with Dinosaurs, which I got from my nephews when they were when they were really little. And I was like, oh my God, they love the dinosaurs thing. And then of course like who doesn't want a British narrator, right? And you know, and I was worried that, you know, like here I am, I'm like, ugh, you know, this is kind of the, you know, mixing too many different time periods. They knew. Like dinosaurs and people don't coexist, right? I mean, that's a revelation to some people. But you know, my, my nephews, when they were five and six, they totally got it. So they they do understand um, they do understand fictional time versus real time, and you really you can work with that with really young children. It's totally okay. All right, who else? Yeah. Uh, this is a question for you, Christine. Sure. Um, do you have any thoughts on how this framework could be applied to spaces where buildings are no longer standing? Or um, demolition sites, enslaved quarters, that kind of place? Oh, that's a, good, that's a really good question. Um, you can start with a picture. You can start with, uh, you know, start with you know, the imagery to support. The idea behind using a framework like this is not that you have to follow this prescriptive thing and it's, you know, it's only going to be, um, <laughs> yes, it's yours. I'm not going to Okay, um, but but that it's only you know that it that it has to be this prescriptive thing. You have it's it's a way of approaching things. You can certainly mix it in with with photos um, like what Ware was showing. I mean, for places that don't exist, the absence of a thing is a really exciting opportunity to say, well, okay, what is here? And you know, if you have a foundation or something, it's like okay, well, it's you know, you have a foundation, you've got you know, grass growing out, you got like those little trees coming out. Like, well, why is this here and why is it in the state it's in? Because that's a layer too. I mean, moss is a layer of history. Or scorch marks. You know? Befriend an archaeologist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah, you don't have to do it alone. I mean <laughs> historical archaeology is awesome. Yeah. So I'm hearing that this could also just work for a landscape, say like a battlefield or oh, yes. Yes, um, and I've actually um, I've gotten a lot of requests to try and do this with landscapes, uh, with uh, particularly with battlefields, and I, you know, I'm coming from Boston and now I'm in New York. I'm I'm a little short on battlefields, um, but if anyone 
has battlefields with them and wants to, you know, and wants to try to, no, I'm serious, like, we don't, you know, we've got, you know, Lexington Green, but it's, like, this big, and then there are, like, million-dollar houses all around it. Um, but if you want to try it with um, a <coughs> battlefield, I would love to know how this works with a battlefield, and I would be happy to help support you in doing that, either by, by a Skype or continued email or whatever. But I would really love to see how it works with the battlefield. I'm pretty sure that, that um, it will. It may need some minor tweaking, but I'd, I'd love to work with you on that. Yeah? Um, do you have any suggestions about how to really model the data collection first? Yes. Because, um, one thing that I've noticed when working with high schoolers is that it's hard um, to get them to slow down and really make observations before going into the Clipboards. Get in the children with clipboards. No. If you, if you give, okay, everybody feels official with a clipboard. Okay? If you ask it at the, you know, give them a couple of pieces of paper at the top of the piece of paper. Sketch what you see. Okay, if you don't want to give them a clipboard, <coughs> the other most wonderful tool, most underutilized tool that we have at our disposal are these wonderful cameras. Okay, if you have students walk around with their cameras, right, because they all have them at this point, okay, have them walk around with their cameras taking pictures of things that they believe are layers, right? Like this is a layer, that's a layer. Then what you can do is that you have them come all together. You know, plug this in, download it to Flickr or to Google Drive or, you know, any one of the technological wonderments that we have, and then walk through it with them. Have them tell you what they're seeing. The, like, this is a wonderful tool. And again, there's no substitute for paper, so clipboards work as well. But this is, I mean, getting them to, to slow down, of course they don't want to. I mean, that's the nature of the beast. But, you know, giving them a, a mechanism to collect the data and then to share it back with you, that becomes the important part where they're sharing it with you. That's where you're going to see whether or not they've slowed down. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I have a, a comment more than a question, but um, I was a sophomore in college when Kent State happened. And um, my college did, it was a small girls college, and my college did a synod. And I think the thing that struck me most about that actually was not what was happening at the time, but what happened when I got on the airplane to go home for the summer. And I had on actually a very nice, balanced color, kind of really short skirt and a vest and a big floppy hat. And I was literally accosted by the person I was sitting next to who was um, a gentleman and um, he just really tore into me about who he thought I was. And um, I mean, just from the clothing. I mean, he had no, nothing else to go on. So we had this kind of riveting conversation. So it just made me think when I looked at that about clothing. And I now work in the 1920s museum. And we talk a little, but I think we could use it more just from listening to you about 
and how that was a rebellion against um, the earlier time period mm -hmm. and the mothers of the earlier time period. But I think that's just an indication of how clothing yeah. can make such a difference, and mm -hmm. it certainly made a difference in my life, you know, for a while. I mean, I didn't agree with this man, but it, it was just so amazing that just one outfit could just really just turn him on to everything nasty and awful that you could think of from my generation. Yeah. And I think that clothing can do a lot, whether you wear it or whether or not you have it in photographs or, um, you know, model mm -hmm. shapes. Um, but I, I think that was very eye-opening. Yeah, it's a, it's a political statement we can make every day. Or not, it's really up to us. Are we the man in the gray suits? Or are we something else? And, and people forget about that, the Kent State connection, that half of the nation's colleges have protests shut down or um, had a strike after May 4th. We think today how connected we are, but they're amazingly connected. In fact, for the 45th, now I had just started when the 45th happened. I've only been there a year. But we did a Twitter campaign and we wrote to every single one of them. And uh, we got a lot of responses. So if you want to look at some we didn't even know about, it was the hashtag May 4 Matters. We have one time for one more question. Do you have an archive there? Many of you investigated everything. Me? Yes. Um, so there is an archive. It's, it's uh, separate from us. We're not together yet. Um, because Kent State has had a difficult history with this. In fact, it's shocking um, that the first memorial didn't go up until 1990. And um, I'm the first full-time director of the center. Um, it only went up um, a few years ago. So we do have an archive, but it's not, um, it's complete in some ways that there are some really amazing things and I would never knock it. But things like artifacts, the parents didn't want to give their stuff to Kent State University given all that was happening. So Yale has an archive and uh, there's stuff that's apart. Now the good thing about today is maybe there's some ways we can bring it together. You're probably thinking about the Nixon stuff too and uh, there may be some more stuff in the Nixon library as well that has been. Uh, but I'm not there anymore so I can't push that. But um, there's lots more to learn <coughs> about what happened on May 4th. Much more. That I would definitely say. So, and with that, thank, thank you so much. We'll be I'm happy to, happy to stay and answer questions. I've got an article for teachers.